in this episode we have an interview with Dan True in which we draw our weapons and hack through combat and combat encounters. Welcome to the Mythras Matters podcast, season one, episode 18. It's all about the combat. Welcome to Mithras Matters, a podcast dedicated to the Mithras rule set and all its supplements. As always, I am your host, Inwills, and welcome to November. I really enjoyed listening back to the M Space episode last month, and I saw that there is a new M Space book out and now in full colour, definitely worth a purchase. Our clocks went back an hour last weekend, so here in the UK we are officially out of British summertime, and I must admit I'm enjoying the dark evenings and chilly weather. I always think that RPGs on dark nights seem more appropriate. I still remember the walk home from somebody else's house after a midweek gaming session, thinking about what had happened as I gazed up at the stars. Mmm, fond memories. But we have a packed episode this month, so I can't spend time reminiscing about my childhood. Let's press on and see what's been happening in the Odess campaign. So sticking with last month's version of campaign updates, I'm not going to detail what the players and characters have been getting up to in the world of Odess, but if you do want to see that, then don't forget to check out our actual play videos on my YouTube channel. Instead of that, I'm going to have a quick chat about an issue which has come up in our campaign with some rather large weapons. So I have to say that I'm a very fluid GM. I like to co-create a world alongside the players and have the world react to what is happening both in the world and the repercussions of characters' actions. I know that some players really enjoy micromanaging their characters, making careful note about where items of equipment are and how many of them dangle from their belt while others are less concerned about that level of detail. As a GM, I like to allow everyone to enjoy the game how they like to play it. I'm not one to say, where was that or how are you carrying that? In my book, as long as it doesn't impact negatively on gameplay, then it's really up to the players. However, there has been something which has been playing on my mind a lot, and that's characters with big weapons. When I say big weapons, I'm talking about huge weapons like glaives and great hammers. They do a significant amount of damage and I do feel that there is a need for some trade-off for carrying these weapons around. 
So I've spoken to my players about this and said that I, I'm not going to keep asking them where their weapon is when they are climbing or running or just engaging in some bar chat. This is up to them as players how they want to play the game. But I have insisted on some additional rules which I have added to cover these huge weapons in combat. So I thought I would share them with you and then you can let me know what you think. Okay then, these are the ideas. So whenever somebody is using a huge weapon in combat, the following situation modifiers happen. Number one, no one can actually fight in the square next to you in fear of being hit by that huge wielded weapon. Um, number two, no one can fight the same monster as you, um, i.e. fighting next to you, in fear of being hit by that large or huge wielding weapon. And finally, no one can pass through your square as usual um, because we say that you can um, move through a friendly square, you know, to, in order to get somewhere else. But if there's a, a huge weapon being wielded, then that's not possible. And why? Well, it's in the fear of being hit by that huge weapon. This is usually the point that everyone points me to a page in the core rulebook and say rules always existed for this, but you all know what I'm like by now. So do add your thoughts to the forum discussion on the Design Mechanism Forum website. I look forward to hearing your view. So next up, the interview section. I was really looking forward to this interview with Dan True. I know he had appeared on the Opposed Role podcast and I was looking forward to discuss combat with him. We chatted for some time, so settle back, grab a drink and be prepared to be inspired. Apologies for the sound quality at times. My recording was dodgy throughout, but I've done my best. So, first of all, Dan, would you like to introduce who you are and how are you connected with Mithras? Yes, sure. My name is Dan True. I'm 32 years old. Uh, I live in Denmark and I've been playing Mithras and uh, the Mongoose Runquist 6 and Mongoose Runquist 2 before that for eight or nine years now. I came over from D&D. That was back in like third edition days, I think. And I'm, I'm very engaged in the uh, forum and the Discord channel. And I am the author of uh, the two combat modules, which are out at the moment. And I have two more to go soon. Fantastic. So the, the two combat modules out are Breaking the Habit and Take Cover. I think that's right, isn't it? So what, what was the inspiration behind those then? Well, the inspiration came actually from, you know, years of forum discussions because Mithras combat is not a particularly hard combat system to get to grips with. There are definitely simple ones, of course, but there are also many which are more complex and some which look simpler at the surface, for instance, D&D 3rd edition. But when you start to dig into the various nitty pieces of class abilities and feats, then suddenly it explodes in complexity. And so, so Mithras in, in the sort of middle part, it has a lot of 
you can keep digging into the complexity and how it but but there's a lot of of complexity as you dig down and i could just see that a lot of people in the forum posts and the questions they were asking just did not they weren't getting all of out of it that they could and you know after having answered forum posts for several years i realized that this is just not the best way of doing it so i was a scout back when i was like 14, 15, 16 years old. And we also always worked with like learning by doing. So I thought, let's just write some company encounters, which instead of trying to be fun company encounters by themselves, which of course they should still be, but mainly as, uh, you know, learning tools. So, so that was the inspiration. And uh, one of the primary things I had struggled with myself back in like Mungu's Quest 2 days and that I saw a lot of people on the forum was the choose location as, as the default choice and choice paralysis. So, uh, so breaking the habit was, was born from that. Is that the habit that you're referring to when yeah. you say break it, choose location? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the habit. I, I must admit I had um, Hengis who plays in the campaign as the main sort of like warrior character. He, he always used to use bleed. That seemed to be the, the go-to one. And then they've slowly changed from bleed to choose location and impale. Uh, that's often a very, popular um, yeah, it is. choice and, and you can use your so so i thought of choose location when breaking the habit but in, in all honesty if you have your group fixated on one or two choose location uh, special effects always then you know the lecture is the same right so it doesn't matter if you use bleed all the time if you use impale all the time or trip all the time breaking the habit tries to teach you to choose the right special effect for the right uh, right situation because going bleed all the time is just i mean a lot of your roles are going to be low low hit rolls uh, where you just roll maybe 10 on your dice and bleed is an almost wasted special effect in, in that situation so you're um, you're going to be wasting a lot of your special effects and your special effects are fairly precious fairly precious so um they, they did cost you an action point and a successful role after all. So, so regardless of what your your fixation is, uh, it's usually wasteful in some situations. Because I haven't been playing Mithras for very long at all compared to everyone else. But I, I must admit, when I started, I didn't give the opponents any specials. Is that something that you like to do? I've just started to do it now. Give them those specials. Do you think that the specials should be on both sides or just one side? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you, you get much more interesting combats. I've had some some really, really good ones. I mean, where if I had removed special effects from the opponents, they would not have been particularly interesting combats. For instance, once where in I was playing through Book of Quests, where one of my players had a, was playing a Minotaur. So he was fairly powerful in, in melee combat, but the cost was that he couldn't wear a lot of armor because who on earth was crafting metal armor for a Minotaur? Who would do that? <laughs> and and he, if you found someone to do it, it would be insanely expensive, right? <laughs> so he was almost killed by toad people, I think. One of the encounters, frog people. One bleed effect from a knife and a failed endurance roll. And in the beginning of the combat and he kept on fighting losing fatigue throughout and which he was just saved by, by an application of first aid at the end it was very very close and that just brought tension to the entire combat encounter because he, he soon became isolated and like surrounded so the others were away from him knowing he was bleeding out 
uh, and him just him just being swarmed and and fighting the good fight, but knowing that he had like this counter ticking down that if if the others didn't reach him and start applying first aid, he would lose his character. And and it's also one of the things that you know a serious wound can be downgraded or a major wound can be downgraded by a lock point. But once the bleed uh, starts, you you can use lock points like uh, win these endurance rolls, but it doesn't stop the count. Of course, you can rule as a game master, but it can really bring tension to a fight, right? And the same with impale, the same with trip. So I've had some really good ones where because of uh, correctly applied trip, the combat suddenly ended up, up as a scrap on the bottom of a cave instead of a heroic fight. So um, so so I think it would be it would be a shame not to apply it towards the players themselves. I actually started to implement it. Um, Hengis wears very tough armor, and he was almost like getting to realize that he didn't have to parry attacks because it couldn't get through his armor. I had this vision of little pygmies um, or small creatures gripping and attaching themselves to the warrior in the end take him down and it worked really well and all of a sudden now the parrying is definitely and passive blocking and definitely is definitely in there i just noticed when you were talking about combat do you use fatigue in combat we've always used that is that something you use as well um i yes in theory but most of my components calendars are over before it really starts to accrue but but there have been situations where for instance where they've had to like scale a cliff at the top there's a company counter so they're already exhausted from scaling the cliff. So so there are situations where they fought with fatigue, but I don't do the nitty-gritty counting of combat actions unless it, where I can see, okay, this is starting to get ridiculous, right? So as soon as I say, okay, I, I think these two have been fighting, right. you know, completely without pause for, uh, for three or four rounds, then I just do like a back-of-the-hand calculation, okay, fatigue should start to, but that happens fairly Really. One of the things I really like about the Mithras combat system is that it really, I, I really like playing boring fighters. I've never been uh, one, when I play D&D, I never wanted to be something really special. I just wanted to be a fighter. And I think the specials really allow the fighters to be fighters. Actually think about the situation, think about what needs yes. to be done whether or not they need to bypass a shield or bypass armor etc to actually cause damage and it's something I, I really like about mithras and especially because in the end we're you know we're we're playing heroic fantasy uh, so we're trying to have games that emulate some sort of fiction it could be the old sagas it could be classic fantasy whatever it doesn't whatever floats your boat right but in something that's bothers me with for instance some versions of dnd I think it's gotten better, is that in the old, you know, sagas and the old heroic tales, you have people triumphing over evil or the supernatural by the strength of the will and, and, and the strength of the sword arm. Not, not because they had insane class abilities, not because they had spells. Uh, of course, that is also part of some stories that the old wizard that helps the young hero and stuff like that, right? But but in the end, I think the hero should should prevail because of them being able to overcome the supernatural not just being in an instance of the supernatural themselves so so i think it's it's sad when you have systems where you know uh, wizards and clerics dominate completely and poor fighters are just after level six or eight they're they're useless right i think that's really sad when when it when it goes like that i can i can completely understand when you start like building this complete 
magical world that suddenly someone scratches their head and says, why is anyone fighting with just a sword? But but unless, of course you can embrace that and then just say, okay, this is a magical world. If anyone, like Eberron, for instance, where if you're a fighter, you better have, you know, wands and magical bombs and stuff like that prepared because that's just how magical the world is. That's fine. I like that. But if you're trying to go for this gritty medieval fantasy where there are dragons hiding in the woods, then I think you should try to have something where magic is usually the antagonist and not the protagonist to, to some degree, right? Well, I don't have any magical items in my campaign at all because I came from a D&D campaign that people would collect items and racial adjustments and this up the other to get so many positives to a dice roll you know i remember watching one and they rolled a seven a d20 and then said to me 19 and i was just sort of thinking what what's going on here i think what you were saying beforehand that um, mithras really has this depth of combat and it allows you to, to excel at it, but also does not remove it from being deadly. It has that really nice balance um, between the two. So, so what about one of the questions that I, I'm still puzzling about and I've still not got the answer to is the idea of ranged weapons. I think things like knives and spears that can be thrown quite readily seem to work, but I've never managed to... I see an archer, you know, being used correctly. What's your opinions about those? Well, this is essentially what the what the take cover company module is about, right? Where you have a mix. I think two of the characters are melee characters who can throw stuff, who have like thrown weapons, uh, and 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 the two others are more ranged, where where melee is a secondary or like classical archers. And you know, the combat module delves into it, but what it can be boiled down to. To first of all, you don't have to parry because even if you have like a thrown weapon, you'll fairly soon go into combat. I'm usually right. So, but when you're you know, when you're lopping out crossbow balls, arrows, arrows from your bow, then then yes, you you don't have to parry. So the reload is not as bad. Yeah. Because you're not wasting half your number of actions on defending yourself, right? And you can when you shoot an arrow, you can apply special effects at a distance. That's essentially that. Those special effects can be used for a lot of interesting things like tripping someone in the open or getting someone to take cover. Yeah, exactly. Two archers in Mithras, if they use their special effects correctly and if the game master doesn't play the NPCs or the opponents suicidal, should be able to like keep down an entire group of enemies. And I really like that because that is scenes from leg players can keep mobs behind monsters behind rocks and boulders you know with effective archery is it is there a rule and we don't the only person who has any thrown weapons in our campaign is Hazra. he has a short um, spear that he uses so i don't i'm not too clear on the rules if you throw or do a ranged weapon into existing melee is the difficulty increased from standard to hard in that situation? Um, there are rules for it. I don't. I don't remember them at the top of my head. But there is a section on shooting into crowds, which which a combat would be right, unless in, unless of course in in some situations, if if you're behind and and there's only two people fighting, then you can say it's fairly trivial to to make sure you only hit one. But 
But in general, melee tends to be fairly chaotic, right? So there is the shooting into crowds rule. I don't remember precisely what it does because I've I rarely use it. Yeah. Because my campaigns, at least for the last few years, tend to be more like cloak and dagger stuff uh, right now. Nice. I don't know if you know the module White Death. It's when the players play 1980 spy characters, but they're actually armed with rifles and and bullets and guns, handguns. And I really saw a lot of the ranged specials coming into play like that, keeping somebody behind cover by using specials to keep firing and things like that. And it, it really was excellent. People would do it. Definitely. If, if take cover hadn't been fantasy focused and I, it essentially ended up like that because the fundamental thing about like climbing the statue is it was actually Pete's idea. Uh, because he wanted to something like to evoke like the uh, the films he saw as a young kid. I had different I, I had a different setup which was too complex, and then Pete threw this in like with the climbing the statue and stealing the jewel, and I was like perfect, just we'll do that. So, but if I hadn't done that, I probably would have done done a, a modern one, and I'm still thinking about doing a modern. I need to get more to grips with the with the modern applications of of, of Mithras, but having like soldiers in uh, like a modern. It could be Iraq or it could be like World War II or something like that. It would probably be an okay combat module as well, just to illustrate the various things. I most most definitely. And with settings like um, White Death, but also Luca, Luther Ark Wright settings, that, that would be absolutely fantastic. It's interesting you were um, describing that situation of somebody climbing um, a statue to get a gem, because I'm sure it's on the front of the player's handbook in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And <laughs> I'm sure this is what... I, I don't know if you can see that. Ah, is, is that what that image is about? I remember the book, yeah. but I have never looked like at it. Yeah, I can see. So they're, they're actually clad. <laughs> just when you were describing it, then I'm thinking. I mean, this is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first yeah. edition. You know, it's so like eighty or eighty-two or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's what I sort of like grew yeah. up playing, and then. Then I came back to D&D 5th edition, didn't like it at all, and then looked for something else. And we really played RuneQuest when we were growing up as well, and then found Mithras. So one of the things I really struggle with, with combat, is trying to get the balance correct. I either make encounters that are sort of like completely wiping out the party, or that they wander through and it's like a walk in the park and it's very easy for them. How would you recommend or how do you actually create your encounters? The first thing I, I do is, is try to like... Um count count effective action points that like it like the basic rule like if you have if you have four action points and you have 50 percent skills and you have two effective action points you can you can count on being successful with two actions the two attack actions or two parry actions right so um, so i try to count that up and make sure that it's sort of equal and then if you have like the defenders have some something to cover behind like an, an advanced position or something like that then i try to like adjust that but I only do it very much on the surface. And then I adjust as I go through the encounter. This is funny thing when it comes to role-playing games where everyone will say when a, when a game master is running an investigation scene or a social encounter scene or 
were trying to buy something from a blacksmith scene, that they should just adjust things as they go. But then someone, when it comes to combat, is saying, like, oh, you can't do that, cheating. So as soon as you move into combat, and there are more mechanics at play, then suddenly changing them on the fly is cheating, whereas doing precisely the same thing with the blacksmith is so it's fine uh, because you're trying to tell a story. So, And I don't buy into that. If, if, yes, yeah, if I need to change the stats of, of the creatures or the players because I've made a mistake that will end up in a total party kill, I will change that on the fly and I will find some way to cover it up. That doesn't mean that you know the players will can count on things because I only do it to like progress the story, right? That they might still lose a character, although rarely because my players are usually fairly good at keeping themselves safe uh, after many years. <laughs> they're fairly clever, gotten used to me. So, so I, I don't have any qualms about adjusting on the fly because it's it's so hard. And the only reason some systems try to have this idea about balance again, like D and D third edition, have this like encounter encounter rating. Is, is because it's it's they've narrowed the mechanics so far down into class abilities and spells that you can like you can math it all, and it only works when you have a certain party composition, and it only works when you're fighting on a flat surface in, in a in a room with room to maneuver and 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 all these uh, underlying assumptions of the system. As soon as you try to change any of these things, the whole system breaks down. So you can't do that. It's you can and, and I'm I'm a software engineer, so I know about creating systems. And, and you, something as complex as a combat where you don't have these underlying assumptions about party composition and the size of the room where things don't happen in a in a in a ten meter by ten meter room all the time uh, with a flat floor, then it it is an impossible calculation to to make any sort of of system like that. Counting action points is a fairly good way, but again, you can you can have this with equal effective action points. Have a situation where someone has a bow in a prepared position and someone doesn't, they're just going to get nuked. It's, it's very hard to capture these things. So just make an interesting encounter, like you would make an interesting social encounter or an interesting investigation scene, and then adjust on the fly to try to keep that encounter playing as you intended. Or, or if, if the players are smart, like come up with some clever trick that you didn't foresee, of course, go along with it. But so it, it shouldn't be that you're railing them. I would rather cheat a bit myself than I would have to like narrow my encounters down to always being in a 10 by 10 room on a flat surface. So. And I really like that approach. I'm really into the narrative. And even during combat, although my some of my players do expand what they're talking about, I like the specials i think it's really good but then if they're impaling i want to sort of like describe what it looks like so they actually get that feel do do you think a lot about weapons when you're making your encounters do you sort of like think oh they've got a two-handed weapon they oh yes 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 definitely so so let's try to like systemize a bit i have a few things that i go through when i design an encounter and the first thing is as i hinted at before location if all your encounters are in a 10 by 10 room or flat field or a courtyard with no uh, terrain or something like that, then they're going to feel samey to some degree, right? So so first of all, try to find some interesting locations. It could be something that uh, either is obvious, like you having a wall or a house or something on, on going on the roof roof of, of buildings, right? Having a roof chase or something like that uh, in, a, in a city. Uh, or it could be in a swamp and or in, in thick undergrowth. And then, then try to, when you have that, then try to think through how it will apply to the combat. 
and if you need to introduce some additional rules. For instance, Mithras doesn't have any rules for like thick undergrowth, how it impacts your movement. But you can like take three seconds to say, okay, that reduces your movement by two meters or something like that. Or you need to continue to make athletic checks to not have that penalty or something like that. Yes, nice. So, and it doesn't have to be the same in encounter and encounter because if you do that in one encounter, and then the next time you have thick undergrowth, you find a, a different rule because you want to change the thing. And players say, yeah. oh, but last time we had thick undergrowth, you needed to do the, the athletic check. And you, then you say, yeah, but that was like, that was thorns and this is something else, right? You, you, you don't have to be that consistent with it because there are so many different kinds of undergrowth in the world that you can, can mix and matches a bit across uh, different uh, locations, right? Um, so trying to find something that will impact in some way if you just have it in a flat field where there's a wall but no one is on the wall or you can't get up on the wall then it doesn't really matter again right so so try to find an interesting location look at movies look at games find something that's evocative right like being fired upon while climbing a statue or having way have a narrow alleyway that you need to break through right both of these are first defined by the location and the next two i'm working on is the same Uh, one is dealing with uh, how to how to play monsters and that has like also a, a closed area where you need where there's things you need to rescue someone and the other is is a bar brawl you're in it in right so that will also define how that combat encounter uh, goes so so location is really important and don't be afraid of making special rules to to make the location more interesting Fantastic. so and the next thing is uh, fighting styles right so both of your players and uh, which you, you were you were hinting at and and especially of the opponents because oh nice yeah try to tie that into location right because if you play like mithras the at least Fantastic. the um, published settings then the combat styles and the available weapons will be very tied to the culture so you're not going to have this huge variance you're not going yeah if you're playing mythic britain you're not going to have someone with a huge ball and chain and someone else with crossbow and some you're gonna, most people are going to have sword spears axes and shields knife so something to that degree. So there's there's going to be consistency, at least in your opponents and often also among your players. Uh, but what you can then do is look at the location and saying, okay, so you have these mythic Britain warriors with large shields. Yeah. How are they going to fight in different situations? Because on a flat field, maybe they're going to make a shield wall if there's enough of them. If there's not, not enough of them, or if the terrain doesn't do that, again, let's say it's a swamp, so there are like holes with water everywhere, then what are they going to do? Are they going to like try to block off some of the, the passages where you can walk? Do they even know where you can walk to just dust the opponent? Imagine trying to like cross a swamp area and you don't know where it's safe to go, but the goblins that attack you do. That could be a very interesting encounter already there because maybe the like knowledge of the swamp is part of the combat style of these goblins or whatever it is, right? Do yeah, exactly. That yeah, and they will know where those places are. Yes, you know, I I am making notes by the way as as you're talking because <laughs> <laughs> so I can implement some of these in my own campaign. So. so try to have the combat style like reflected. Just because you have eight opponents which are all mythic Britain warriors with the same combat style doesn't mean they should do a shield wall all the time. Uh, if they're in a swamp with a lot of holes, as I said, they would do something else. If they're defending a wall, they would do something else. If they're in siege, they would do something else. You wouldn't try to make a shield wall and then storm up the hill of a modern Bailey castle, right? You would do something else. Maybe they would do like a testudo thingy with the shields yeah, exactly. or anything, yeah. something like that, right? They will be very familiar with their fighting styles. So they would know yes. what's appropriate and what's inappropriate this time yeah precisely and 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 don't be afraid to guide them as as the game master because your your players don't i mean your players 
don't know necessarily how like Saxon warriors would fight, and, and neither yeah. do you necessarily. Historically yes. correct, <laughs> but you designed the combat encounter, so you must have spent at least a few yeah. minutes thinking. Oh, if they do this, they're going to be successful. If, if they do this, which might be the traditional way of doing it, they won't. So you might be able to say, oh, the traditional way would be doing this. But maybe take a law strategy and tactics role yeah. and I'll tell you more if you succeed or something like that, right? So, so yeah, combat style is definitely important and you should, should again try to tie it into the to the location because even if you take something like familiar like a modern soldier a modern soldier won't fight the same way in the same in different locations, right? He will fight differently in a, in a forest with a lot of cover versus a desert versus from a vehicle versus in a building. Okay. So take that into account. And the next thing I do is take into account the objectives of both parties. So most, I would say most combats in most gaming systems are just, you're trying to kill each other, right? There's the players who encounter a monster or some opponent and they try to kill them and the opponent defends them, uh, the opponent defends themselves and try to kill the characters back. Then the next layer is, is saying to the characters, your objective actually isn't killing everyone. You have an objective with this fight, which is, you know, ties into the story. Again, break, breaking the habit, the objective is to get through and escape the city and take cover. The objective is to, if you can, steal steal the large jewel in the statue's head, but again, escape. Even though the objective is the same, try to escape with your lives, they play very differently because of the location and because of the combat styles, right? So yeah. the two different, the two previous points. And so in those cases, the objective is the same, but you can have a lot of other objectives. Uh, you, you Maybe the objective could be like either just killing one, of them, but not the others. Yeah. So maybe they, you, maybe they have one leader who you need to kill because he's like the cult leader. But you don't really want to hurt all his followers because they know they're just being brainwashed. I really like that idea of this objectives, and I think I've too often fallen into the habit of right. You need to rescue this damsel who's tied to the thing. Let's have the combat, and then the combat finishes, and they rescue the person. And I really like that way that the objective becomes an integral part yeah. of the combat. And then that leads back to, uh, so like feeds into the location and the fighting style. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Love it. Especially because in that situation there, it, it would be much more interesting if the fight takes place like right in front of the cage where the princess is being held. Yeah. Because then, you might have someone that like clears around the combat and frees the princess exactly. and then on yeah. the way out yells to the others okay it's time to go because then the combat then you can you can adjust the number or the, the difficulty of the enemies to actually say you really can't defeat the, them in a straight up fight but but maybe maybe exactly. most yeah. of the party can like hold them off while one person rescues the princess and then those people holding them off will have a really tough time and burn through some lock points and have some really intense things. Whereas the person rescuing the princess might have to like break open a lock or cross a, a ravine or something else that like is a challenge for them and makes it take some time. But that changes the encounter completely because suddenly it's just not slaughter everyone, go to the princess. It's actually get in, hold the line while Adam goes and does his, his thing at the at the cage, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, you could, it could be the same with getting an item. Uh, we're like, okay, you need to hold them off at these two entrances while I climb up uh, here and, and, and grab the thingy. Or um, it, it could out, oh, even be, yeah. if you move into like real world objectives, it could also be like changing someone's mental state or, or, or an organization's mental state. You could have a fight where you actually 
maybe you kill someone, but that's not actually what you want to do is like yeah. you want to stir the wasp's nests, right? So there's this goblin lair, but the goblins are always in the bloody lair. So they only go out to raid. So what you do is that you keep attacking them just like pinpricks to try to like get them to raid the village so you can ambush them and kill them all or something like that. So that could be like changing the whole mental state either of an individual yeah, exactly. or the leader or the whole yeah, organization. Really like or it could yeah. just be like gaining uh, intelligence. Maybe you just want to know how the goblins fight so you can tell the king so that we, when he sends his army, you can like report to him, but you don't need to kill all 700 goblins. And, and that will really influence the, the specials that people are using. I was just thinking about, you know, an idea about when you were talking about trying to get a, a, a gang of goblins following somebody away yeah. so somebody else now you, you're not going to sat, sit there impaling them to nearby trees because you actually want them uh, to follow them and you're going to lose your main weapon if you impale someone and then run away right <laughs> yeah exactly you know so i really like that yeah. yeah so you can you can take a lot of, of cues from like real history and saying okay yeah. if you were um you a soldier in the iraq war what what is your objective in the individual fight or if you're an insurgent what is your objective because they're not necessarily kill everyone on the opposing side it, they, they can, it is much more complex so that's the first level i think about what's the objective of the players but then you can also say what's the objective of the opponents so that the opponents are not always just reacting um so you can have again you can have a situation where the characters have one objective free the princess but the objective of the opponents isn't necessarily protect the princess as, as maybe it is this particular character is part of our you know myths or something like that our seer has foretold something so when they yeah. attack us our we recognize that and our objective is actually to capture that single character we don't care about the rest and then suddenly you have two objectives which are not just like inverse they can both succeed right the characters can go in and rescue the princess yeah but have one of them taken capture by the goblins. Yeah. Because the goblins think they're like holy or, or, or the devil or something like that. I, I think my combat has always ended up with just sort of like um, them just fighting, if that makes sense, without any sort of... Their, their objectives have always been for the players to kill the, the monsters and the monsters to kill the players. But I really like that idea of actually engaging with what are the actual objectives here. So, you know, and that would influence the whole the whole combat, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. And then you can have more objectives, of course. You, you, might, you might have a primary objective, a secondary objective, or a tertiary objective. Objective. And then, and then maybe have, if you know the objective, say, as a game master, you should preferably know the objectives, right? But you say you've given them three different objectives in order that they want to accomplish. But then three rounds into the combat, something changes, which like nulls the first objective. So they need to rescue the princess. They need to find out who uh, the goblin high priest is. And they need to find out how the goblins are fighting and where the main base is. And then as they're raiding the outpost, three rounds into the combat, the, high, the uh, goblin priest kills the princess. That, that's your main objective gone. You, you, you sort of still need to complete two others, but you're going to throw your characters, your, your players, really on the back foot about what's going on here. And then the high priest maybe leaves with most of his warriors and just leaves a, a rear guard to just keep the characters away from falling. And then you say, okay, so yeah. so the princess is dead and we learned something about how they fight, but not where the base is and we didn't kill the goblin priest. Uh, do we follow them or, or what do we do? Yeah. That's much more interesting than 
than just going into a room and fighting everyone until one side is completely dead. I, I was also thinking while you were talking about that scenario, I suddenly thought it'd be really interesting to have um, players with different objectives yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. <laughs> One of the objectives could be, right, you have to try to rescue her, but it looks like the goblins are going to take her off, then killing her is a better objective. Maybe because she need, she's going to be sacrificed or something like that, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then that can really sort of like interact and the party as well, if, you know, they've got different objectives. I like that a lot. Yeah, I had a classic example of that from, from my own game is back when I, when I ran the Book of Quests campaign, one with the Minotaur I mentioned earlier. One, one of my players was a magician in hiding or not hiding they were so the book of quest world has this i think it's called the order of truth which is like fighting against chaos and he was a member of that of the part of the order of truth which doesn't mind using magic to fight chaos so he knew magic but he was still a good guy and but he he had this chaos item essentially which you could use to sacrifice people and gain magic ma magic from the power a fairly easy thing but he so he had co continuously had to first of all keep it secret from the other characters and the players they only like learned about this fairly long into the campaign and but he also had to like balance this so he didn't overdo it because he knew that if he sacrificed everyone and used a lot of magic points he would probably turn evil at some point right so he was trying when they were fighting someone he deemed really bad like not just ordinary people ordinary people they, they maybe you kill them maybe they surrender whatever but when they were fighting chaos cultists he had he was trying to like leave them alive because then when the rest of the party moved on he could just like oh wait a minute, I'll, I'll i'll be a second and then just sacrifice them to 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 regain some some magic points and and then uh, like find some excuse why he 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 dabbled and and and, and, so, and that was really cool because he had to like yeah. had this constant balancing Fantastic. act about how he was playing his character, but it also influenced how he was fighting because he he always tended to like draw people into other rooms or where he could use his magic without the other people seeing them. And like when they were again when they were fighting someone, he deal he deemed okay. I, I don't mind if I sacrifice these two. Two, two evil gods then um then try to leave them like only unconscious but not completely dead and then avoid the minotaur from stomping on them and stuff like that right it was really interesting I, i'm dying to know did did the party find out <laughs> about this uh, actually no no the, the the players found out but the characters never right did. nice fantastic uh, but the, but the players only found out like i think a year into the campaign uh, it was at some point, there were enough, like, uh, what we call, like, ninja notes being passed around so that they knew <laughs> something was off. And, and then too many weird wounds that didn't turn out to, so that turned out to only be scratches and stuff like that, yeah. right? So, yeah. Uh, but that was really cool. And and it was because he had a character objective which were different from the others. But yeah. actually several, right? Hide it. He had, this, his, uh, he had his, his powers, but he needed to hide them. And because there was no natural ma uh, magic point regeneration, or maybe there was like one one MP a month or something like that. He essentially every time he he cast a spell, he had to find a way to regain those magic points at some point, which would entail doing an, an evil deed. That, that was so, epic. Um, I really like that idea. So so what's after objectives? Is there any more for my list? We got location, fighting style, objectives. Uh, I think that covers it, and then balance as you go, as we talked about. Yeah. Um, so you so you don't get hung up on. On, on an individual thing, but I would say those three three things, and then the 
balance as you go caveat yeah covers most of what i do when i do a look, look uh, encounter design including when i design for combat uh, encounters to to be um to be published. fantastic I, I that seriously that has been so helpful for for me as a gm and somebody who's new to the game that that's been fantastic you you did you say that you're working on something else um a combat module at the moment as well well as i said i have two two combat modules ready uh, not not ready um working on and uh, one is in a preliminary editorial process which means that i've written it and I need uh, the design mechanism to take a look at to see we'll go with this, in which case I move on to playtesting. And the other has maybe a few evenings worth of writing before that's in the same state. So uh, so those two common modules. And then I'm working on a, a setting book called Book of Schemes, which uh, has been underway for, for a fairly long time, which is uh, delving with intrigue in an urban setting. Oh, that sounds epic. I really like the sound of that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's turning out really, really nice. I think and breaking habit breaking the habit and take cover are they available through drive through or through the design mechanism store as well yes they're at least they're on drive through um breaking the habit is pdf only at least in english i know it can be printed in german and french i think but in english it's pdf only for now it will be uh, print on demand soon and take covers print on demand through drive i've actually got both i should have played it right the way at the beginning of the campaign before the characters sort of like were made up but we're so much into a campaign at the moment that i think it's i think it would really allow the players to develop their combat and start to pick specials that reflect a need you know or try to drive towards a conclusion rather than just thinking choose location in pale and and nothing else. what you can do is is so what there are a few ways of doing it one is just running it like with the pre-made characters completely you know outside of your campaign just this is just tonight we're just doing a lesson yeah and we're running this next time we're running take cover and then just having that using the pre-made characters that's one way of doing it another if you want to use the characters in your campaign if you were starting a new campaign what you can do is make the characters then run the two encounters with them and then allow people to adjust oh, if they want good idea yeah because then they can learn how how the characters will fare in different situations of course when there are more combat modules you're probably going to have to make a choice right because you're not going to make characters and then run six completely uh, unrelated <laughs> um, <laughs> We, we'll never get to the actual campaign. We'll just be doing combat mode. But that could be like way of introducing new characters, saying which before we start the real game, we're going to do this. Another way is is rolling as as a fast as a flashback or as a dream. Um, so you could have uh, so take cover is you know taking place on Monster Island that is fairly specific. So you'd have probably have to tailor that to your campaign but breaking the habit could easily be something like okay we're going to take a flashback to right before the campaign started nice idea yeah where you were in the wilderness this was how you ended up in the wilderness or something like that uh, or the other town you fled before you ended up where we started and so we're going to take this flashback uh, and, and at some opportune moment in the campaign maybe during downtime uh, and then hopefully the characters are going to be like richer for the experience afterwards which will like reflect uh, 
a narrative gap like between seasons in a, in a TV series or something. And right. I really like that idea of, uh, you know, flashing back to a previous time and sort of like letting them experience it. I, I think that would be um, fantastic. I, I was just trying to find my um, take cover. Oh, I found it. Because I think breaking the habit, we use um, Roll20 as our um, we don't meet in real life, mainly because I know it sounds dreadful, but uh, my party, the players, two of them are in America and there's three of us here but in the uk but completely um spread out so but i does oh yes it comes with the maps yeah and they count the account um, little people as well for world 20 which is absolutely fantastic yeah yes i think i think there's fairly good world 20 support uh, from people just taking these things and lifting them into the um the mithras what i, I don't know much about world 20 but there's like a mithras library or something like that file template i've learned so much dan i seriously have and so inspired to sort of like develop more um combat more well more interesting combats and more engaging combats thank you so much for giving up your time to come along and be on the podcast i really do appreciate it and some fantastic ideas i i've made notes as you can probably see on on the interview sheet so i'm all ready to quickly redesign saturday's uh, upcoming adventure <laughs> but thank you so much i really do appreciate it you're very welcome I can safely say that I came away from that interview completely inspired and I'm definitely looking to have Dan back along with maybe someone else to have a triangular discussion about encounters and world building, something which I always need some support with. And remember, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, then why not just drop me an email or message and let me know what you would like to cover. I'm always looking for reviews or interviews with people. So if you are interested, you can email me at inworlds at gmail.com or send me a message on Discord or the various forums I frequent. Also, if you are interested, I've started a series of videos on YouTube called The Gibbering GM. These are based on my thoughts relating to RPGs and I cover, well, I am going to cover a range of topics um, because I've only recorded one so far, which definitely caused some interesting points in the comment section. I've got more to create on that channel, so please do go and check them out and let me know what you think about the rules or ideas that I discuss there. And that's it. Another episode of Mithras Matters completed. As you can imagine, I am going off now to rewrite a lot of my combat encounters after Dan's fantastic advice. Next month, I will be joined by some of the in-crowd when we talk about creating characters and their backgrounds. So definitely not an episode to miss. So until next time, have a great month of gaming and I will chat again to you all in December along with the decorations and the eggnog. Until then, I hope that all your opposed worlds succeed and provide you with a well-deserved special. Thanks for listening, everyone. See ya. Bye.
The content of this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. So please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast. Thank you.